Well, as some of you know, and some of you are no doubt tired of hearing about already, uh, I like to play pickleball. That's, that's one of my hobbies these days. And, and I'm, I'm okay, all right? I'm, I'm okay. I'm not terrible. I'm not great. I'm okay. Uh, and part of the reason for that is I grew up playing tennis and racquetball and ping pong. So I've, I've always played racket sports. And, and, and most of those skills translate pretty well to pickleball. Uh, and what that mostly means, if you haven't played any of those things, is that my brain does a pretty good job of looking at a ball that's headed my direction and calculating where it's going to go. And then my brain makes sure that my arm gets where it needs to be to make contact with the ball. That's all that means. I got okay eye-hand coordination. I've been working on it for, for quite a while. Most of the time, that works pretty well. But every once in a while, uh, something happens that I find frustrating, but, but more even than frustrating, I find baffling. So just a couple weeks ago, I'm playing. Uh, my partner and I, we're, we're, on, we're behind the baseline. We're at the back end of our side of the court. And the team we're playing, I can see, even before the, the guy hits the ball, that the windup is short, and, and I can see the body's hunched a little bit. And I think right away my brain identifies this and goes, they're going to hit it really soft. They're just going to tap it over the net, and they're going to hope you're not going to get there in time. And so before they even hit it, I'm already starting to move forward, right? I take off. I'm going full speed, sprinting up to the net, and, and the ball bounces softly on the ground, comes up, and about halfway there, I'm starting to smile because my brain has told me, oh, we're going to get there. We got plenty of time. We're going to get there. Where do you want to hit it? You want to go down the line? You want to go cross court? And, and so I think, oh, I'm going to go cross court. I'm going to just shoot it right across there. They won't expect it. And then all of a sudden I realize the ball's bounced a second time. Now, if you're not familiar with the sport, that means we just lost the point. Okay, now it's frustrating, but it's genuinely confusing because I'm sitting there looking at it and it feels like it's the twilight zone. I think, oh, wait a minute, how'd this happen? I had plenty of time. I, I, I knew I was going to get there. And occasionally, I'm silly enough to say out loud, well, what happened here? I, I thought I had plenty of time to make it. And one of my friends will uh, gleefully say to me, well, I know what happened. Your brain thinks you're 20 and your body's actually 40. That's what happened to you. I call that the pickleball paradox, right? There's part of me that sees that shot and knows I can get there, no problem. But there's another part of me that goes, no, you can't, not anymore, right? Uh, if you've been with us, we, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians for several weeks now, uh, and you know that one of the main themes of this book concerns a similar kind of paradox. Uh, it's not, nothing to do with pickleball, but the paradox that Paul keeps addressing throughout this letter is that, that some in Corinth are asking Paul, they find it paradoxical, and they're asking, why would God entrust this glorious, wonderful message of salvation to, I mean, no offense, Paul, but such ordinary messengers, uh, such unimpressive messengers. Specifically, they're wondering why Paul isn't more impressive. Why isn't he more charismatic? Why isn't he more powerful and important? But Paul has explained that what they have seen as a paradox is in reality the wisdom and purpose of God at work. Specifically, what Paul does over and over is he points them back to the cross. And he says, friends, remember, it was on the cross that God's glory was most clearly revealed. 
And when God revealed his glory most clearly, what it looked like was humility and sacrificial love for others. And so Paul says, guys, we already know that. And since that's how God revealed his glory on the cross, we should not be at all surprised to find that the gospel still advances in exactly the same way today. We should not be surprised that if on the cross his glory looked like humility and self-sacrifice, of course, when the kingdom advances, it's going to look like humility and self-sacrifice. It's not a paradox, it's the wisdom of God. But as we get to the end of chapter 4, which is where we were last week, and the beginning of chapter 5, where we are this week, uh, Paul turns a little bit to address a different but related paradox uh, and, and this is slightly different, but apparently some people are asking, look, it's confusing. Uh, if I am really indwelt uh, by the Holy Spirit, if I have this great gift of salvation, why is my own life still so full of spiritual and moral struggle? Why isn't it easier to do the right thing? And for that matter, if Paul, as you're telling me, I have new life in Christ, if I'm a new creation, why is, why is that gift, why has God put that gift in this old body that is still declining and headed for death? Why would God do that? The gospel promises transformation. It promises freedom from sin. Paul has been promising these very things. And some in Corinth are left wondering, why is that transformation sometimes so hard to see? Uh, this is where I think it's close to my pickleball paradox. There is a part of them, they recognize it, right? They recognize that there is a part of them that has been saved and redeemed. There, there is a part of them that has been set free from the power of sin. But there's also a part at the same time that still seems to really struggle with sin. And there is obviously a part that is still subject to decline and to death. So, so they know something has changed, but they're looking at Paul and they're going, but when is the rest going to change? Uh, when are we going to have the full and final transformation that God has promised us? Well, if you were here last week, you know that Paul's fundamental answer to that question, when will this full transformation happen? Uh, when will I finally be totally free from the power of sin and death? His basic answer is, well, that's coming, but it's in the future. And what that means is, yeah, we are still going to struggle, we are still going to suffer, but that all of those struggles and sufferings are only temporary. They're only temporary. One day, God will put an end to it. Uh, this is what Pastor Joel touched on last week. At the end of chapter 4, Paul makes it crystal clear. He says, yes, we are. You're not confused, you're not mistaken. We are experiencing struggles and suffering in this life some of them are deep in profound struggles. But ultimately, God promises that one day they will end. And furthermore, Paul says, verse 17, that in the end, when we look back on this life from eternity, we will see those struggles and sufferings for what they are, light and temporary in comparison with the weight of eternal glory that lies ahead for us. So the answer to this paradox, Paul says, is that someday soon, God's going to resolve it. Someday that transformation that's been started by the power of the Holy Spirit 
will be brought to completion. And that part for us that right now, the part of us that right now today longs to see God's will done in all creation, one day that part of us will live in a world where that's true. Now that brings us to our passage today. So, so Paul has already provided an answer for that question, but in our passage today, chapter 5, 1 through 10, in the next few paragraphs, what Paul is going to do is he's going to take that, that simple answer, uh, that, that, that full transformation is coming in the future, and he's going to explain it in more detail. He's going to kind of dig down and get into the complexities of the human hope. Uh, He has just told the church in Corinth at the end of chapter 4 that they have this great hope and that it's coming in the future, this eternal glory. But now, like any good writer, what Paul is doing is he's anticipating the next questions from his audience. Uh, He imagines that they're going to read that and they're going to say, okay, Paul, it's fine to say. It's nice to say that, well, one day in the future that's all going to be okay, but what's that going to look like? And how can we be sure that that's actually going to happen. Now, chapter 5, 1 through 10, Paul's going to get into his answer. I know this is a long buildup. I know this is what I always do, but hang with me for one more minute because before we get to the passage, there's one more thing we need to make sure we understand before we can get to Paul's answer. Uh, We need to to make sure uh, we understand the view of human existence that Paul takes for granted when he's writing this letter. And what Paul takes for granted is what we find all throughout scripture, starting in Genesis 1 and going forward, which is that human beings, you and I, every human, is a synthesis of two parts. Uh, We have an immaterial, that is a non-physical part, an inner part, and we have an exterior, material, physical part. Uh, The interior part, the immaterial part, is what we often call our soul. Uh, Your soul I'm trying to keep this brief here, uh, comprises you know, your will, uh, your thoughts, your desires, your motives. So that's our soul. But we also have, obviously, right, look around, we have a physical, material part of us that we usually call our body. And Paul believed that what Scripture said is that we are a combination, we are a synthesis of this immaterial part and this physical part. That was how God designed us, it's how God made us, and Paul would be careful to emphasize, that was very good. The fact that we are a soul in a body, it's not a problem, it's not a flaw, it's a great and good thing. That was God's intention. God did it, and as someone reminded me this morning, God doesn't make mistakes. God didn't come up with a bad design, it's a good design. That's what makes us who we are. But Paul also believed that when sin entered the world, it did damage to both parts. Sin damages our soul, but it also damages our bodies. Uh, It damages our souls because it makes us unwilling and unable to do what is right and good in the eyes of God. Uh, You shouldn't need a lot of evidence for that. Uh, that We have plenty of evidence, not only from our own lives, but all throughout the testimony of Scripture. Uh, Sin has compromised that immaterial part of us. But also, and you know, it's funny, we maybe don't think about this part as much, but sin also has done great damage to the material world, to the physical world as well. Scripture testifies to that too. Uh, And that includes our bodies. Because of sin, our bodies are subject to decline and to death and to decay. 
Neither part of us, in other words, body or soul, is now as God had originally intended them to be. Both parts have been compromised by sin, and therefore both parts, Paul believes, are going to require rescue and transformation. Just, I don't know if this is going to help you or not. It helps me. I think this is the best analogy I can think of right now for the human conception of what it is to be a human being. If you've got your cell phone, you can either picture it, or if, you, if it helps you, you can take it out and look at it. Uh, teens, do I have teenagers in the audience right now? I see some of you. I'm just telling you right now, if you've got parents or grandparents here and they don't follow this analogy, it's your job to explain it to them later, okay? <laughs> just fair warning. It's on you, all right? Uh, so... If I were to ask you, you have a cell phone, if I were to ask you, what makes your phone your phone, I think what you'd find is you would need at least two, it's two things, right? It's both the physical hardware and it's the data and software that's on it, right? So I have a Samsung S21, it's blue, I don't know if you can tell that from back there. Uh, so, but if you were to take this from me, and give me a different Samsung S21, same model, same color, same specs, and you would say, here, take this, this is your phone. Well, you might trick me at first, but as soon as I turn it on, I would say, well, no, it isn't. My apps aren't on here, my contacts aren't in here, none of my data is on here. And you would say, but I thought you said your phone was a Samsung S21. I'd say, well, yeah, it is. And they'd say, well, that's what you have. And I'd say, yeah, but but it's missing my data, it's missing my software, right? But you could do the reverse. You could take this phone from me, you could give me an, an Apple iPhone 13, 14, I don't know what they're on, you just give me any old iPhone, right? And, and you could say, here, this is your phone. And right away I would say to you, well, no it's not, I have a Samsung phone, this is an Apple. And you could say, well, hey, turn it on, look around, it's got your apps on it, it's got your contacts in it. And I would say to you, that's weird, it's a little bit creepy. Uh, it's maybe proof of identity theft, but it's not my phone. To be my phone, what makes my phone my phone is that it's my hardware and my software together. You can't take away one of those things and still say it's my phone. I need both. That's how scripture talks about human beings. We are both, we are our soul and our body together. That was God's design in Genesis. That's how he's created us to be. And if you take the analogy a little bit further, what the Bible says in Genesis 3 is that when sin entered the world, it's like we got a virus that has damaged both the software and the hardware. Nothing is working as it should. And if we don't address both problems, we are not going to have a working phone in the future. It's no good to replace the hardware if the software is still flawed. It's no good to replace the software if the hardware is still going to die. We gotta address both. That's, that's the biblical worldview. That's what Paul assumes when he writes what we're about to read together. So now, we've had the buildup. Let's look at our passage. Look with me today at uh, first, or 2 Corinthians 5, verses one through five. Paul writes this. Now remember... Keep in mind what we said before. He's already told them we have this great and glorious hope. It's in the future. Here's how he explains it. He says, For we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, 
longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us already the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What Paul explains here in verses 1 through 5 is that in Jesus, God has provided what I would describe this morning as a two-part, two-stage hope for our two-part problem. I know that's a lot of twos, and I know that looks worryingly complex for how long I've already gone. But, we're, but hang with me, we're going to walk through it. I think it'll make pretty good sense to you if you understand the problem as Paul understands it. So let's, let's unpack it a bit. Um, I'm going to start in verse 5 because I want to go chronologically, not the order Paul went in. I, I think it'll make more sense. So if you look at verse 5, here Paul is talking about what I would call stage 1. Stage 1 is a present, ongoing, and inner transformation. It's a present, ongoing, and inner transformation. Look again at verse 5. Paul, what Paul says here is that if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, then you have already received the Holy Spirit as a deposit. In other words, what Paul is saying is that part of our future hope is a present reality. We've received part of that already in the present. The Holy Spirit is at work in us right now. If you are a believer, if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, right now the Spirit of God is at work in you, restoring and transforming your soul. Paul reiterates this later in the chapter, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is already in Christ, then they are already participating in new creation. New creation is already here. Now think for a second what that has to mean. If anyone's in Christ, all right, I'm in Christ. Paul says I'm a new creation. Well, you know, I can tell you with, with high degree of certainty, he's not talking about my physical body. I still get sick. I still experience pain. Uh, I am still, as I mentioned in my opening illustration, I'm getting slower, not faster. I'm getting weaker, not stronger. It's the natural trajectory. So he's not talking about my body. What's he talking about? What does he mean, I am a new creation? Well, what he means is stage one. He means the Holy Spirit is inside me right now, rewriting my software. He is right now restoring my soul. New creation has started with the immaterial part of what makes me, me. The moment we receive the Holy Spirit, that work of inner renewal and inner transformation begins. Now remember, it's present, but it's ongoing. So that has started, but that's going to continue all throughout the rest of our lives. It's present, ongoing, inner transformation. So if you go back, if you think back to the big question here, when can we expect the transformation God has promised us in Christ? Well, Paul is saying, you're getting part of that right now, in the present. Part of that transformation has already started. Stage one has begun for any and all people who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit has already started the ongoing, lifelong work of renewal of our souls, of our software. Now look, I know... 
that maybe sounds a little bit abstract to you. What does inner renewal mean? What does it mean the Spirit is, is transforming our souls? That sounds very abstract. It's worth noting, it's not visible, okay? We can't measure it with a ruler, but it's not abstract. The best example of this is Paul himself. The Apostle Paul, before he encountered the risen Jesus, was called Saul of Tarsus, and he was a zealous persecutor of Christians. Saul spent his time imprisoning, persecuting, and even overseeing the execution of other followers of Jesus. But then, one day, Jesus appeared to Paul in the flesh and turned Paul's world upside down. Uh, From that moment on, Paul gave Jesus his allegiance, and in that moment, Paul received the Holy Spirit, and immediately, the Spirit of God went to work transforming and renewing the soul of Saul of Tarsus. Now again, you couldn't measure the progress with the ruler, but you also didn't have to be a genius to see what God was doing. In a matter of months, a guy who had been executing Christians became one of the most powerful ambassadors for Jesus Christ, planting churches all around the Mediterranean. Friends, that may not be visible, but if that's not transformation, I don't know what is. That's stage one. It's the renewal of our souls. It starts at conversion. And what Paul is insisting here is the same spirit that is working that transformation in Paul is at work right now, transforming you. So that's stage one. What about stage two? Well, stage two is future, instantaneous, and outer physical transformation. It's future, instantaneous, and outer physical transformation. Uh, If you look back at chapter four, verse 14... This is what Paul says. He says, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Look again at chapter 5, verse 1. Really, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Look, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, uh, and, you know, he doesn't use a cell phone analogy. He wasn't aware of cell phones. Uh, So he uses buildings, and he compares our current physical bodies to to a tent. And he says, if the earthly tent, if the physical bodies we live in today are destroyed, we know that one day we have waiting for us a permanent, eternal, physical house in which we can take residence, right? That's the analogy he's making in verses 1 through 4. I want to make two quick points about this. First, quite simply... The future stage, stage two of our hope, is that God will provide us a new physical body for all who are in Christ Jesus. A new physical body. You know, in stage one, God renews the immaterial part of us. In stage two, God is going to renew the physical parts. And this is worth making clear, because there's, I run into confusion on this today. Historically in the church, there's been a lot of confusion about this. Uh, but the Christian hope is not that in eternity you will exist as a soul without a body. Uh, you could call this Gnosticism. I always think of this as the sort of Looney Tunes heresy, right? So if you're familiar with those old cartoons, right? Wiley e. Coyote, he falls off a cliff, uh, and he, his physical body dies, and then what happens? Well, this, this ethereal, immaterial soul comes out of the body and floats away off to heaven with wings, right? 
Now, that's a heresy. That's not actually what we believe as Christians. It's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches clearly, consistently, and often is that our future hope is that God is going to give us, as Paul says, a new eternal building, a new home for our soul. God created us to be an immaterial, a soul and a body. And even though sin has damaged that, God's not giving up that fight. He's going to win it. And you will spend eternity as a soul in a physical body. Uh, now it will be immortal. It will be incorruptible. But it will still be physical. I find it interesting to note, and I'll admit to you, I might be taking Paul's analogy a little bit too far here. But I find it interesting that Paul doesn't contrast a temporal tent with an eternal tent, and he could have done that. He doesn't contrast a temporal house with an eternal house. He contrasts a temporal tent with an eternal building. So Paul's, in Paul's analogy, our new body is not only eternal, it's more substantial. It's more material in some way than our current bodies are. It's not less. I like how Tom Wright puts this. Uh, you know, there's, there's a figure of speech I think we're all familiar with. You know, as we get older, as our, as our bodies decline, it's, it's common to say, man, I, or maybe when you're just very sick, you'll say, I feel like a shadow of my former self, right? I feel like a shadow of, of my former self. And what Tom Wright says is that the Christian hope we could think of in almost exactly the opposite way. Where when you were at your physical peak, when your body, when your earthly body was at its very best, even then you were but a shadow of your future self. A shadow of your future self. What scripture promises well, is that we will get a new physical but immortal and incorruptible body. That gets me to my second point here. Why, would, why, would, why do we believe that? Why are we confident that that is uh, the hope that we have? Well, because Jesus is our living proof of concept. What we actually believe, and the way I like to say it, is that we believe that what God has already done for Jesus, he will one day do for us. What he's already done for Jesus, he'll one day do for us. Now, I'd suggest to you, first and foremost, that should make us pretty confident we're not trusting that God is going to do something that we're not sure if he can do it or not, something that he's never done. We're trusting that what God has already done once, he will do again. I have to say that makes me feel pretty confident. But more than that, I think it's worth noting this morning that the resurrected Jesus gives us a glimpse. It gives us a little picture of what we might expect when we too are one day resurrected and raised to new life. Uh, we actually have a fair amount of information about this in the Gospels. The resurrected Jesus still eats and drinks with his disciples. He can still be touched by Thomas, right? But, oh, actually, one more thing. I find this very interesting. He eats and drinks, he can be touched, and although some people have trouble recognizing him for who he is, they eventually do. Even in his resurrected, glorious, eternal body, Jesus can still be recognized visually by those who knew him as Jesus. That's just an interesting glimpse of what we have to look forward to as well. So our resurrected bodies, make no mistake, they'll be glorious, they'll be immortal and incorruptible, but they will be material, they will be physical. God is not giving up on creation. 
It was good, and he is reclaiming it. Stage one is the transformation of our souls, and it has already started. Stage two is the transformation of our bodies. That's in the future. That's yet to come at the return of Jesus. All right, so let's go back to my analogy one more time. So we're like, a, we're like a phone, right? We are hardware and software together. That's what makes us who we are. But right now, because sin has entered the world, both things are messed up, right? The hardware is not how it should be, and the software is not how it should be. What Paul writes and tells the church in Corinth is this. He says, God has a plan for both problems. And stage one has already started. If you have given your allegiance to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you have downloaded the Holy Spirit, and he is at work in you right now, rewriting and restoring that software, returning it to how it should be, how God intends it to be. But there's still a problem, and, and they're right to recognize the paradox. The hardware is still broken, and it's not getting any better. Paul says, don't worry, God has promised to address that too, and he will. And we have proof of concept in Jesus. One day when Jesus returns, after the Holy Spirit has done its work, after it has fixed the software, God is going to give you new hardware. He's going to address both. Now, keep in mind, you know, I, I don't want to field a bunch of questions about how this analogy is not perfect. I know it's not perfect. It's just a metaphor. It's not reality. But I think it's helpful, and it, it can point us in the right direction. Uh, the main thing I'd like you to take away this morning is that the gospel of Jesus promises transformation of our whole being, both parts, body and soul. What Paul argues is that God is going to renew and restore both parts of us, software and hardware, and the inner transformation has already started. Now that, friends, I don't know about you, but to me, that is a powerful hope. It's a powerful hope. It's hope for the present, but it's also hope for the future, and, and both hopes are anchored firmly in the, in the resurrection of Jesus and in the present gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the other thing Paul means by a deposit. How can we know that God is going to keep his promise in the future? Well, he's given us the Holy Spirit in the present as a deposit to guarantee that he will finish the work. But here's the last thing I want to leave you with this morning. Paul doesn't share this encouragement. He doesn't elaborate this future hope uh, just to make you feel better about the future. Paul thinks, Paul tells us this under the impression that it should compel us to live differently in the present. He thinks it should compel us to live differently in the present. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. So I'm using this to close, but Paul also uses this passage to wrap up much of what he's been talking about in the last two chapters. He says this. So keep in mind, he's just elaborated, he's gone into detail on this beautiful, wonderful hope that we have for the future. And then he comes to verse six and he says this. Therefore, because of all these great and good things God has promised for the future, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, look, I think it's worth noting 
Paul takes for granted that there is always going to be a part of us as believers that would prefer to be with the Lord. But Paul assumes that if we are confident of the resurrection, if we are confident that one day we will be with the Lord, that we should feel compelled to live differently in the present. The the, the knowledge that we will one day be reunited with God should make us want to live in a way that's pleasing to him in the present. Uh, I want to highlight just two quick things Paul says about this, two applications. First, verse 7. Paul says that this confident hope we have should lead us to live by faith and not by sight. Now, this is a popular verse. It often gets plucked from its context and put on magnets and throw pillows and things like that. But, but I want you to consider what Paul means when he writes that in the middle of this passage here. What I think Paul is saying here, if you've, if you've been listening the past two Sundays, is that the visible reality, the part of reality accessible to our eyeballs, only tells part of the story. And often, it's the less important part. Often, it's the less important part. Like Paul... We may outwardly be experiencing suffering or trials. Uh, Or, like Paul, we, we may appear poor or unimpressive to people around us. And yet, we know that if we are in Christ, then there is a deeper reality that is that is true. That deeper reality is that the Holy Spirit is at work in us right now, transforming us after the likeness of Jesus. That deeper reality is that if we are in Christ, then we know that we will one day be raised to life with eternal life and glory with Jesus. And what Paul says is that reality, that deeper reality should shape the way that we live. It should change the way that we treat those around us. To modify one of my favorite expressions, uh, knowing that we have that hope, uh, should, should transform us. It should mean that we live in a way that only makes sense if you understand the hope that we have in Jesus. Second, in verses 9 through 10, Paul says the hope we have in Christ should motivate us to try to strive to please God in all that we do now in the body. I find verse 10 very interesting. I think we don't often think of it this way, but what Paul is arguing in verse 10 is The fact that we are confident of the resurrection should lead us to take the judgment more seriously. Now, maybe that strikes you as odd, but trust me, if you think about it, the logic checks out. If you don't believe in a resurrection, if you don't think that we're going to one day be raised from the dead, then you've no need to worry about a judgment. If death's the end and there is no more, there's no you to answer for all the things that you have done, good and bad. But Paul says, but that's not us. We are confident of the resurrection. And that means we should take seriously the fact that one day we have to give an account to God of what we've done. Um, My senior year of college, uh, one of my my capstone classes, one one of the last classes I was taking for my major, uh, we had to do a a big research project. Uh, And I I remember very clearly, first day of the class, as professors like to do, my professor stood in front of us and she walked us through the syllabus and she was funny, she was a fun professor. We got to this big section on our final project and she literally waved her arms and jumped up and down and said, come back to me, pay attention, listen up. Uh, I know you, I go through the, the, the syllabus, your eyes glaze over, but I need your attention. And what she said was, uh, this is a big project. 
You're going to have to come up with a research question, a research hypothesis. You're going to have to design an instrument, usually a survey, to test this hypothesis. You're going to have to convince a large number of diverse people to take your survey. You have to recollect them. You have to process the data. And then you have to take all that and write a paper and explain to me what you did and then tell me why that either validates your hypothesis or nullifies it. And she said, I'm, I'm waving my arms, I'm jumping up and down because you're college students and I know you. I know that there are some of you here in this class that start every single paper the night before it's due. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm waving my arms because I want you to know that if you wait until the night before, if you wait until the weekend before, it is already too late. There's just too many different pieces you have to do. If you don't start early, you will not finish. And she said, and I'm telling you now, you have three months, I will be giving no extensions. Now, despite the, now, well, I'll say this. I don't know how many times I sat in a class, uh, college and seminary, where a professor walked through a syllabus. I have no concrete memory of any of those. They all blend together in my mind. But I remember that for two reasons. One, it was kind of funny that she actually like waved her arms and jumped up and down. That made it very memorable. But second, I remember that because despite the jumping and waving, despite the warning, guess what? We got to the end of the semester, and there were two or three people in my class who started the project the weekend before it was due and realized all of a sudden that it was already too late. And they begged our professor just for a couple more days, a little more time, one more week, and she said, no, you've known for three months. I warned you, I told you, you knew exactly what you had to do and you knew exactly when it was going to be due and you didn't do it. Friends, there's a deep lesson in that. And, and that is that it's a, it is a, a great gift and a blessing to have a little window of what's gonna happen in the future. It's a huge gift I mean, can you imagine going through a class where you didn't know what assignments were going to do when, be due when? You know, the professor just shows up and collects something, and you're like, man, I, how did I know this was going to be due? It, it's a huge gift, an enormous blessing to know at the beginning of that class exactly what was expected of us and exactly when it was due. So that's one deep lesson, but there's a second. And that second lesson, which Paul makes right at the end of our passage today, is that that won't do you any good if you don't change the way that you behave in the present. It does you no good to know what's coming in the future if you don't prepare for it. Friends, we have this great gift, we have this amazing blessing that, that we are told, we have great confidence that we know what is coming. We know that one day Jesus will return and raise us from the dead. We know that one day Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. It's, I mean, Christians have been reciting that creed that we recited this morning for thousands of years. That's what we believe. God has told us that in advance. But it will do you no good if it doesn't change the way that you think and live and behave in the present. We do have a great hope. Let's live like it. Friends, we are confident both of the resurrection and the final judgment and if we really believe that, if we take that seriously, it should be our goal to please God in all that we do today. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great hope that we have through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we don't just have a hope. We don't just have a promise. Uh, We don't even have to just take your word for it, even though your word would be pretty good. We thank you that in Jesus, we have a proof of concept. We thank you that we can look at him, we can look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can see a glimpse of what you have promised for us. And we thank you too, Father, for the other truth that we too often take for granted, which is that stage one has already started. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in us even now, restoring us, renewing us, and transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to cooperate with that work Help us in view of the great hope that we have to live differently in the present. In your name we pray, amen.